You know, everybody's wearing a hat all the time. It's just a question of which hat you're either aware of or which hat you wish to wear. There's a very good there's a very good project, by the way, is is if you want a a, um, a wonderful meditative life exploration to do is take some time and to go design a hat. What kind of hat what kind of hat symbolizes one where you are, what what you are, and what hat would symbolize where you want to be to manifest to the world? Really, it's serious. So sometimes, I know for this being, I, I don't know even, I, maybe for some others, not sometimes, but in this being's life, on a number of occasions, uh, a hat has arisen very clearly in meditation retreats where I'm now wearing a hat. And sometimes I actually change the outer hat to reflect, I'll wear a hat for a while to reflect the hat that has arisen and then I'll move to another hat. You see? So hats are actually very important because it symbolizes the crown opening in different ways. So seeing a hat, not just seeing it, but really having it happen, like you're, it's there. You can feel it, you can see it, it's clear. Uh, and the feeling in the body, the speech, and the mind changes uh, in a similar way that visions of clothing in in meditation or out of meditation, but profound changes of, of clothing and no clothing, becoming naked, or uh, having rainbow clothing or blue or these kinds of things. These are very important in uh, the unfolding of, of uh, beings' uh, consciousness. So watch for them. But sometimes they're fleeting. Sometimes they're fleeting and not so significant. Uh, and sometimes they're very significant in terms of determining or showing where the consciousness is going to go and unfold. In some cases, the clothing, the robe, the clothing, the hat, uh, is a definitive sign of certain states of accomplishment. But it must be for real. Must be, must be for real. And I may, I may mention some of these. You don't want to know, do you? No. I might, might mention some of these um, later. Yes? So the clothing that you wear in uh, regular life? Yes. Can you speak about that? Yes, the clothing, you, the clothing you wear in regular life, what is it showing to the world? People say, well, it doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter. Because this is um, not compassionate. Uh, how you feel, how your being is, is displayed whether you like it or not. And it interacts with the environment. So the question is, why wouldn't you be clear about your clothing? You see? So these are, these are all tied up with psychological issues. I'm no good, my clothing's no good. I, I feel great pride, I want to display something that I am, or something that I'm not, like perfume. Perfume can enhance, can enhance and uplift and support the smells and the odors that you have, 
or very often it disguises the odors for purposes of attraction or purposes of keeping them closed off or hiding them, yes? So now you see, especially in North America, I don't even know if it's that strong anymore, pardon the pun, but was, you know, everybody getting up in the morning because, you know, the marketers tell you and you roll it on, you know, that's, of course, after bath. So what are you displaying? This is a very important question. Why are you displaying it? Very deep psychology in this. What kind of clothing do you wear? What colors do you wear? Uh, what does that actually mean internally and ex- externally? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, a word for the wise, I wouldn't take it lightly. So when you, when you, <laughs> I, but I wouldn't be overly concerned, yes. but I wouldn't take it lightly. Uh, there are people I would dearly love, and I have done this, is taken out and we're going shopping. I've had to do this different times in my life, uh, purposely, directly, like to to some students. You know what? We're going shopping. I'm going to teach you how to dress. (laughs) And we're changing your wardrobe because your wardrobe is showing a very bad mind state. And it's time to elevate it. Like always wearing baggy pants or always wearing certain colors that, that... reflect a very dark mind, you know, this kind of thing, or overly bright. You know, this, 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 is, this is worth exploring. Worth exploring. Or people that are very reluctant to display. They don't want to show anything. Very muted, toned down, don't want to be seen, please. And then others. Other times, you know, very, very invisible. Very invisible. The progression, the progression of the outer uh, clothing manifestation, um, basically moves, if you wish. This is, by the way, this is my own. I give you my own personal take on this from experience. Moves from confused very confused about uh, colors and clothing and how you appear, all this appearance, appearance. We're going to get into this a lot. It's a very important question. Appearance, because appearance, there's so much clinging around appearance, body and how you reflect in the world. And it moves and then gets more and more radiant, more and more radiant, to moving towards rainbow, rainbow colors. More and more radiant. Uh, Almost... What's the word for it? Celestially, it should go to celestial radiance, celestial radiance, and then eventually to nakedness. Okay, that's then there's another stage. Okay, completely stripped bare, naked. Okay, there's a debate whether the word should be nude or naked. Mm. Raphael and I have had this discussion <laughs> whether it should be nude or naked when we're talking about coffee. You see? Uh, that's another story for another day. <laughs> Why? Pardon? It's a New Zealand. It's a New Zealand term because we had a very hard time describing the coffee we'd like to have served, so we had to come up with a new term, which which means, if you have a cappuccino, shall I tell you about this? If you have a cappuccino, in Italy, in a cap, normally in Italy with a cappuccino, you put on 
chocolate, or chocolate and vanilla. It's quite quite normal. I prefer not to have that because it interferes with the taste of coffee. So in New Zealand, you'd ask for a cappuccino, and no, in North, in many places, the cappuccino does not come with toppings. It comes plain, correct? But when you go to New Zealand, all of a sudden you order a cappuccino or a coffee, and they put stuff on it automatically. So we had to come up. I had to come up with a term for the baristas, which meant don't do that. So I came up with a term, which is could I have a naked coffee? We coffee, and we had this discussion because sometimes you go up to a barista. And you say, I'd like a naked coffee. Especially if it's female and you're a male and they go. They don't have a clue what that means, but they don't really like the sound of it. So then we thought, well, maybe that's too offensive. Maybe a nude. So could I have a nude coffee? Have fun. I like this. You know, this is my, my practice of interacting with people. It's kind of fun. Uh, but you know what happened? Two years later, we never heard this term before. Two years later, that term is being used all over New Zealand, which is they'd say to you, would you like it nude? We'd never heard this before. And now there's, and there's a coffee company that now has a nude, uh, a nude coffee. This is their blend called nude. But I'm not kidding. We used to go around and we had to come up with a term, so we started this term. And they said, well, what is naked? What is a nude coffee like? And I said, well, it means no, no chocolate or no vanilla on it, please. Oh, okay. Within two years, it was everywhere. People say, you know, it's fantastic. Eh? You say, would you like your coffee nude? Okay. But anyways, naked and nude, they have different connotations. But anyways, so from radiance, all the way from celestial radiance, of blissful radiant lights and colors and smells and sounds, to stripped bare of all, of everything. See? And then, finally able to freely wear whatever is appropriate as a manifestation of compassion. Do you see the progression? So from confusion, mud, muddy, 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 don't care, hide, confusion as to the appearance of the body, appearance of the being, to radiance, celestial radiance, eventually completely nude or naked, naked. Nude is more for life drawing. It's interesting. For life drawing, right, you say nude, you say nude but not naked. Because naked has a sexual, intimate connotation. This is where we had this debate for about a year. Which term do we use? So nude is more socially acceptable than naked. Naked has a slightly sexual, intimate connotation to it. See? And then able to wear any clothing for what is appropriate out of compassion for the beings that one is interacting with. Understand? That's important. So don't don't take it don't take it lightly, but don't get too overly concerned. And so maybe in a week or so when we go to do a practice in Panachel, you then will go, well what what fabrics do you want to maybe change into? Possible. There's, there's personal style, and then there's how do you how do you how do you look at something? There's nothing in the universe that doesn't tell a story. Yeah, but um, what I'm thinking is like first for myself to go out, and, and if I was going to change my clothing, yes, like my garb, yes, uh, I might choose things that are more personal style rather than 
something that might help with uh, raising the consciousness, raising the being to another yeah, level. The, these are things that you balance. Yeah. But how to do that? It's easy. Give up all the personal and everything comes becomes for compassion. Mm-hmm. Who cares about you? Who are you anyways? And this is not negative, it's actually true. Who are you anyways that, that is going, what's personal? There is no personal. Putting on this hat affects the beings around me. Do you see? So what's personal? I have no personal space. I have nothing personal. I think it meant it more from the point of like, like one person would say that this is absolutely exquisite and beautiful, but if you had a professional in that area, say in textiles, they'd be like, it's not actually that decent. That's right. You know, and, and like I'm right. trying to, the question is how, how does one um, learn more? Like everything learning, like everything exploring and learning, exploring and learning, exposing yourself to people that know more about something or you find people that know more about something, but they actually don't. Like we do with coffee at the moment, which I've also done with textiles and other things, and gemstones and so on. Uh, You go and you learn from people. And sometimes you find people that really help you and uplift, and others who are experts. So I had my mother, who's still alive. She's lovely. I love my mother very much. But we had a disagreement when I was a teenager. A major disagreement. You want to hear about this one? When I was a teenager. Probably when I was 12 and 13. I like the combination of brown and blue. I still do. I just love that combination of brown and blue. And she said, and my mother has an amazing color taste. She's a fantastic uh, master quilter and um, uh, trained as a seamstress. She's a fantastic color sense. But this is where we had a major disagreement. She would not let me put a brown shirt on with blue pants or a blue shirt with brown pants. There's no way... She'd go, this, it does not work. And I said, no, it's the most beautiful color combination, browns and blues. Well, it became very popular. What's the, what's the logo? What was the logo for Fortnite for Parallel? Brown and blue. And it was absolutely beautiful. But it was actually too early. She was saying, this, does, this, this combination just doesn't exist. People don't dress like this. And I was saying, it makes me feel so happy. I just love the feeling of brown and blue together. She's going, and I did a whole painting when I was in art school. I did a whole painting. It was all brown and blues. <laughs> brown and blues. You see? Right. So, so even sometimes the professional... So I say this out of great love and respect for my mother, who has great color sense. Uh, no. And, and often what happens is, as time goes on, there's certain rules and certain ideas about what is in favor that get broken as things change, get, get, get shifted. So you have to watch for that. Anyways, these are... But you have to consider these things because this is really much, very much a uh, insight um, course, insight retreat, is a question everything. What do you have a personal style? Do you have a personal nature? What is is the whole idea of having personal space and personal identity even true beyond a very thin veneer of relative conceptualization? And do you need it? Or or is it that you need it and don't need it simultaneously? 
is even higher. You can have a personal space and know it's a figment and use it in many different ways. Not conniving, just use it skillfully. Let me give you an example about, for instance, the patio, the area that we could meet on above above my room. Why not have people go sit there and talk there or meet there? Why? Number one principle is one, this being requires some personal space. So if they're there, then I can't go out to the patio and actually have any personal space and that sort of thing. I never know who's up there. But number two, uh, that's even less important than giving respect, not to me, but to the principle of the Lama and not having people standing or sitting or congregating above the Lama's head, which I hold very dearly, not so much for this being, but is something good to teach others. So, for instance, if I'm with a teacher, one of my teachers, or uh, a being I consider to be a mentor for me, I, unless they ask me or invite me, I always sit lower than they do. Even if they say, no, come sit here or something like that, I will usually sit lower unless they insist that, please, sit with me. Do you see? Always, always elevating the mentor so that you don't, you get the, the feeling, it's very important to put in the mind stream, that there are beings, whether they are or not, not better than you, but have capacities that they've developed that are precious. This is... Okay, now we begin. Uh, it's very, very important that, and this is something I think has been eroded deeply in the West, not to always... By the way, there's great qualities of the Western culture and Western mind. But one of the things that's been eroded deeply is the preciousness of the mentor, respect for the mentor, as having gifts that you could have and elevating that. In the East, it's absolutely fundamental. I'll give an example. Your mentor, in the, in Vaj, especially in Vajrayana and Tantric terms, should always be up, elevated, on a small or high throne. Why? Not because that person is an egomaniac, but because the Dharma and the preciousness of the, me- of the spiritual mentor is so important that you must use the outer, inner, and secret symbols to make sure that you give it preciousness. Otherwise, you defile it in your own mind. Do you see how precious that is? Very important. In the West, this is a very tricky point. I've said this to a number of friends of mine who are teachers who tell me, well, they sit on the floor with their students. I go, no, you shouldn't do that. Not because you're higher, but because people need to really experience the Dharma and the symbols of the Dharma as being extraordinarily valuable and precious and not, you know, like a Dharma book. Put them on the floor. No. Everything should be, everything to do with liberation should be elevated, 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 elevated. This is hard for Westerners because we're in a culture of, of, of democracy where everybody's the same. Everybody has equal ideas. 
So for instance, I could open up the class and say, does anybody have any ideas you want to share? Maybe you want to, we can freely talk about the nature of emptiness. And for four hours, everybody's kind of giving their view about emptiness. No. No, thank you. But I have been accused of this by some people saying, you know, you didn't let someone talk for an hour about their personal feelings in a Dharma class. That's why I haven't ever come back to your class. That person had something important they wanted to say about the history of their personal life. I said, that has nothing to do with Dharma. But in their mind, personal stories is, is what Dharma is about. And I said, this has nothing to do with Dharma. I don't care about the per- person's personal story. I care about liberation. Interesting, eh? Important. Do I care about the being? Yes. But when giving discourse in Dharma, it's not appropriate to hear for an hour someone's problems and what they've gone through in life. We've all had the same things. Right? Let's share it and let's keep elevating it. No, we don't elevate personal neuroses. Right? What do we elevate? Liberation. 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 These are important questions. Very good. And you can see Jamie is working at experimenting with <laughs> his outer outer domain. Yeah, that's very good. I, I encourage it. It's great. He's working with colors and look and all this. It's very good. Yeah. So be, before I begin uh, into the uh, first of the twelve examples of illusion, does anybody have any questions you'd like to ask? This theme of clothing, by the way, and hats, is fundamental to uh, illusion. Because we're always wearing a hat. You know that, right? We're always wearing clothing. Even if we're naked, we're wearing clothing. We are displaying to the world how we feel. And we're sending out that vibration. We're emanating a vibration of our mental, st- of our totality of mental states and our chemistry at any given point. You, you, know, you know that, right? Yes, I hope so. The question is, have you come to the point where you have determined that it's more compassionate and more wonderful to be a gift to the universe? Or how about this as a Western view? Whatever I feel... <laughs> I have a right. I have a perfect right. What, however I feel and whatever I want to do goes. In my book, and certainly with my root teacher, Namjo Rinpoche's book, that is a serious misunderstanding of love and compassion and awakeness. Serious. Serious breach of ethics. Serious breach of common decency. Of this me generation. Of whatever I feel like doing and sharing. It's perfectly... I wish that, you know, if you're... If you're you know, someone listens to a, a tape someday in the future, I, I wish that would get on there, right? You know, what... what Whatever I would like to display to the universe is just fine, right? I can do whatever I want, which means I can sit and gossip for hours, 
if I feel like it, I can spread rumors, I can be negative, I can sit with my friends or others, or I can be on a subway or a bus or in a busy store, and I can be on my cell phone and talking business or talking to my wife or my husband and screaming at the top of my voice, right, in some emotional argument in the middle of a busy store or a line up for an airplane right in someone's ear. And if you turn around and say, excuse me, they look at you and they say, do you have a problem? This is this has gotten out of hand. Yeah? My, whatever I've got going, I now am freely able to share it with the universe with no discrimination of emotional content and that the emotional states that I carry and the mental states that I carry reflected in my body, speech, and mind are viral. Do you know what I mean by viral? They spread and they affect others. So when it comes to personal space, that's a very, very thing, a personal being. Why do, you, why do we need to have a personal being beyond personal being as a display and manifestation for compassion and love. This is very, very important. Very important point. In the beginning of the path of liberation, because you're going to, as we go through this retreat, you might every once in a while say, hey, wait a minute, how about me? What about my problems? The beautiful thing about Buddha Dharma, as taught for 2,500 years, is the problems are actually fairly simple. They come down to greed, hatred, delusion. Or greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy. And all the rest of the emotional states that you can possibly describe can be categorized within those five. This is lovely. It saves a lot of time. It really does. I don't know if you were there. Maybe you were there, Shalai, once, when we, uh, during an Abhidhamma retreat, put on a, on a big blackboard at the Dharma Center. And we filled the blackboard with, uh, I must, what do you think, 150 different terms for negative states. We just kept filling this big, giant blackboard with negative words for negative states. Yeah? But guess, what, what, what did they all, what, what, and this is during the Abhidhamma course, what did they all come down to? Greed, hatred, delusion. All these words, all these words, all these words, all these words. We don't need them. don't need them. So every once in a while you may say, well, what about my problems? You see? This is the central tenet of, of Dharma. We need to clear those. The question is, here's this is to me beautiful. How efficient? If you get into social mental dialogue about certain things, it can become the most inefficient way to actually lead to liberation. So one of the beautiful things about the Buddha's discoveries which have been tried and tested for thousands of years. And by the way, if things get tested they get, and they don't work, they get thrown out. That's the beautiful thing about yogis. Just like you know about yogis and yoginis, professionals that have been practicing all their life, if it doesn't work, they throw it out. They're, they're hard cases. Most yogis and yoginis who are professionals are very tough nuts. And that means if something doesn't work, over time... 
don't have the time to work on something for years and it's not working, right? So things get sorted out fairly well. So the beautiful thing about an insight or is, is uh, practice for liberation is we want to reduce the number of things that you need to think about down, 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 down to, to bring about the greatest speed and effectiveness and not huge complexity that means you're spending all your time trying to figure out what it means. Does that make sense? So there's been a lot of sorting out. Beautiful little laundry lists. Eight of this, seven of that, five of this, four of that, two of this, one of that, through the centuries of distilling these lists that you can carry around so that when you're meditating for weeks, you can hold three or four things. Three or four things. <laughs> and that's it. Instead of, well, let's see, was it the um, state of such and such and such and such? Don't need to worry about that. You just find it easily. Let me talk about three things to do with illusion. These are the three primary concerns, domains of illusion. And it has to do with the, the unfolding of a being to great liberation. The primary delusion, the primary illusion that we contend with on a daily basis because of the amount of discursive dialogue is what constitutes me. <laughs> not you, I don't know. Just but you. But me. <laughs> not you, but me. What, what is this me experience? For most people, with the body, the mind, feelings, sensory experience, what am I? Who am I? And most of the daily focus, even if it's on the outer, most daily focus is about me feeling comfortable, happy, loved in the world. If you look at your dialogues, write them all down, internal dialogues, you'll find out that most of the dialogues are not about really others. But if they are about others, it's me in relationship, I in relationship to others, but more of a concern of how to be loved, happy, comfortable in this universe. Okay. So the first the first area usually in all Dharma teaching to clear this up is to reflect and study this experience of the I, the experience of me. What is this self experience? This is fundamental, very important. But it turns out as profound as that is, it simply doesn't lead to full liberation, but leads to a partial liberation. Okay? It's good. Not bad. It's good. Number two, so that's self. What is the nature of the self-experience? But number, number two, is what is the nature of things and phenomena. So now we have this, this image of self, this, this feeling of self. 
But we must go even further because even if we know the self to be an illusory construct, a fleeting bubble of light that has no real substantiality, there's an every likelihood, every likelihood that the phenomenal world out there or here is still treated as a truly existing set of objects that seem fundamentally real depending on our conditioning, the words we use to describe them. And this is, this is profound to consider this. We're a human being. Human beings are wired to experience the world only in a certain way, but not necessarily the way that a dog or a cat or a bird or a worm or a cockroach. The majority of life on the planet does not necessarily see or experience or hear the universe as you do. You know that, yes? Many people don't. You, We walk through life from birth to death believing that the human way of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, feeling, and so on, and conceptualizing is the way the universe is. It simply is not. Isn't that something to consider? So I'd like you to write that down and consider that is when you crawl along the ground or swim in the lake or go for a walk or sit comfortably is what you're seeing only 1% or a half a percent or 0.0001% of the entire range in which the planet is experienced. And one walks around and talks believing that that's actually reality. Isn't that something? Isn't that mass delusion? And then if you want to go in, in if even deeper wonder, that point oh 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 one percent of the way in which the universe is experienced is a deeply profound way, rich, meaningful, extraordinary way in which human beings experience the universe. And the wondrous thing is it's only one tiny little way of how the universe is. So we want to know how an ant sees or hears. And human beings being intelligent and creative are always designing equipment to extend the range of sensing beyond what the human being can normally expect. So we constantly building new microscopes. We're inventing all kinds of new techniques of microscopes, telescopes, sonarscopes, all kinds of equipment that extend the human range to see beyond and hear and taste and touch. We talked about gas chromatography today, yes? We have equipment today that can pick up one part per billion of a chemical, only three, three, four, five, ten molecules, and we can determine what it is. Isn't that amazing? They use those at airports for detecting, sniffing out uh, materials for bombs. There's even some that are more uh, sensitive, one part per trillion like a moth. A moth a moth can pick up a single molecule 
or two or three two or three molecules of a chemical in the air and determine that the mate is over there and fly that way for two or three kilometers to find the mate. Pheromones. Isn't that amazing? That's extraordinary. Do we do that? Are we conscious of that? No. Do we do that? Yes. Do we know it? No. We actually have that built into us. The ability to pick up small amounts of molecules that we never smell, but actually change our behavior entirely. That's a sense too. Sense too. So how the phenomenal world is experienced does not necessarily get cleared up if the illusion around self is cut through, is penetrated. Just something fundamental to know. This is why we teach this. A lot of what I'm going to be teaching is self, yes, but a lot of it's going to be about the entire experience of the phenomenal world as being an illusory construct. We need that for liberation. We must have that for liberation. Okay? It's harder. You may ask yourself, so where does this all go? Well, I talked about the bodhisattva levels yesterday. Is that the more that the more that one knows non-conceptually and intellectually both that the experience that one's having right now is a figmented construct of the mind, of the, of the partially seeing, partially experiencing mind, the greater the compassion grows, compassion by understanding, compassion by feeling the pain of others, and the greater the ability to untangle it for other beings. Do you see? This is, this is why it's so important. If you can do that, then you can actually create environments. People call it magic. It's not magic. You can create environments, spaces, for people to grow and awaken. Or find spaces for people to grow and awaken or modes of behavior for people to grow and awaken that are more effective than some other method. But that's that's compassion. Why? Because one sees how beings interact with spaces, and one knows that there can be more optimal environments for people to unfold. Any, Any questions about that? So we'll be dealing with this for the next three weeks. As we unfold, are we able to see any more than the 1%? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are times, I hope for some of you, where you will be, whether we call it in meditation or not in meditation, sometimes it doesn't matter, where you will experience being an ant and seeing like an ant. Or it's all in there. 
or seeing like a dog, or seeing like a tree, or experiencing being a tree, or experiencing a range of flavor constructs that you've never ever had before, or smelling in a way that you've never smelled before, or seeing even the scene that you're looking at, or another being before you, in a way that you've never ever had any possibility of even imagining, and realizing that too is perfectly valid. Yes. In many ways, what you want to do is take that 1% and keep opening it up and opening up until it just gets shattered. You realize there, there really isn't any way, really any one way of seeing, except we want to be able to see with freedom. In other words, all ways of seeing are possible. That's, what's, what's important is not that you see the world as a special way of radiant light as taught by the Aztecs or taught by the Mayan shamans or taught by the Zunis or taught by this people or that people, right? But you can actually experience the universe with consciousness in every conceivable way at any given time. That's, uh, this is what's so wonderful right now about science is someone says, well, you know, we don't really see very well into the gamma rays in the gamma ray spectrum, the universe. So we'll make a gamma ray uh, detector. So now we can actually see what the world looks like if you had a gamma ray, gamma ray eyes. Well, it's revealed all kinds of structures in the universe that no one's ever known they're there before or the radio wave spectrum, or a certain band like this of infrared spectrum. Oh my gosh. See, in, in ways never seen before. When you walk today, or sit or stand today, consider this. You can, you can write this one down. So these are, these are, these are uh, deep enough for weeks. Okay, each one of these. Just consider, keep it in the theme of your mind that the range of what you're seeing or hearing is maybe only one millionth of the scales that could be experienced. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. If you look let me let me give you an example. Do you see this this painting, the scroll painting on here? What 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 does this look like to you? Monkey. Monkey. Okay, that wasn't a Zen question. It's just monkey. Okay, monkey. Yeah. We normally see things within a certain size, range, and scale. Correct. But you know that if you were to go up to this painting closely, as, you, as some of you have done in museums and so on, the painting's no longer a monkey, it's a bunch of splotches of ink or uh, droplets of paint on a canvas and you can't see the monkey anymore, right? It doesn't take much to do that, correct? Just go up to it and go, you're not even thinking about a monkey, you're looking, wow, look at the red. Look at that red stroke, it's beautiful. Or look at that line, do you see? If we were to take a microscope at even 10 or 20 times power, 
all that would be on this would be little colored dots. Is that real? Absolutely. Or any fabric or anything that you've got going, even all your skin. You go up with, a, with even 10 power, it's no longer skin. You see? You can't even describe it as skin. That concept goes. But that's such a narrow range. Turn on an optical microscope to 400 or 500 or 1200 times, 1500 times. A whole new universe opens up that you've never encountered, never seen, never explored. Then put it under electron microscope, because I, I like it, because scanning electron microscope has a dial. You can just go beep, like this, just spin it. And you can go from, at high power, you can go from 400 to 300 times, all the way up to half a million. Half a million. Until you're seeing clusters of large molecular structures in fuzzy shapes in front of your eyes. Isn't that cool? At half a million times, you can see large aggregates of molecules, fuzzy, very fuzzy. It's just that, that you're getting onto the edge of molecules. Go to a different microscope. Well, actually, a good electron microscope, we can go into seeing re resolving very large molecular structures. But go to a transmission electron microscope, and you can image single atoms. Commonly done, all every day, all over the world, single atoms. There's a microscope being built at the University of Victoria. It's not being built there. It's got to be delivered. Maybe this summer, if we get lucky. If we get lucky. But uh, uh, it's being um, fixed and designed and bugs taken out of it in Germany. It's made by Hitachi. But it's the most advanced electron microscope in the world. Its resolution is great. Is, its resolution is smaller than an atom. It actually can resolve the shells of the electrons around atoms designed by someone's brain. A scientist at University of Victoria, he designed it. He figured this out. It's being installed maybe this summer. Quite something, isn't it? That range of extension of human sensory activity is million-fold. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's million-fold. And Astronomical telescopes, millions of fold in that direction. So millions of fold this way, and millions of fold that way. Smell, trillions. Machines that can measure trillions and print it out for you and say, you've got this molecule, this molecule, this molecule, this molecule. Do you get the feeling? So right now, we are in a mass delusion. Don't, don't call it bad. Don't put a flavor on it. Don't tinge it. It simply is a mass belief that the normal way of experiencing is the normal way in which reality is. But I hope those examples and this month is going to shatter and open up the bliss and the clarity that this very fixated, narrow range is nothing like the universe actually is. By the way, I would say, I'm just going to guess, this is just a view, but I would say that probably somewhere in the order of 90 to 95 to 98% of most scientists that you meet would tell you exactly the same. It's not coming from just a Buddhist perspective. Uh, good Buddhist scholars and practitioners will tell you the same thing. 
and most scientists who are cosmologists, physicists, biologists, chemists, even ecologists, would tell you exactly the same thing. They would, they would, they would go absolutely, absolutely correct. But it's one thing to hear it, and one thing to know it intellectually. But emotionally, this is where it comes down to. Emotionally, that's completely different. So no matter how much you work with electron microscope, I had this debate with a a, a lama in Dharamsala not long ago saying that, that science is liberation. Science is also awakening. I said, no, disagree. he just come back from a science life conference with the Dalai Lama. And I said, no, I don't agree. We had a debate. He's a good debater, by the way, professionally trained um, Gelugpa monk. We had a debate. I said, no. No matter how much you see with an electron microscope or, an, or a telescope, no matter how much you explore biology, it will not lead to liberation. It can help because the emotional taints are still there. You can know that this that that the that the self is a complete figment of the nervous system and well designed for evolutionary purposes. You can know that. You can study it, you can learn it in textbooks, you can you can teach it at the university. But when someone tells you you're an idiot, it all goes <laughs> like that. Or someone steps on your foot accidentally and you go, fuck you. Right? And it goes out. Or or someone says something that doesn't agree with your position. You say, you hurt me. That was abusive. You hurt me. I feel abused. Where did all that intellectual knowledge go? Gone. Gone. Completely gone. Right? Evaporates. So it can't be done just on an intellectual level. It must be done at a physiological level where the map of the view of self and reality actually fundamentally shifts. Which happens every once in a while. Many people in this room, because many people have done good meditation or are gifted in that way, have had experiences where that's dropped away, right? You know it. But there has to be enough change where it becomes the normal operating mode. Yes? I think you just said it. Oh, okay. I, I was wondering, like, mm, could you be so deeply moved by what you explore then, through telescope or microscope, that you, you can drop your personal view? Yes. Yes, but it, then, then it takes... It, yes, for... Some rare beings, the and I'm going to read a quote from Einstein. Must maybe I don't think we have. We may probably better to write it out because okay, otherwise I have to bring my laptop. But for some rare individuals, the scientific endeavor, not as a normal endeavor, not for thought, but for very rare, the scientific endeavor leads to transcendent experience. No, no question about it. Pascal, a bunch of others, even some philosophers. It's actually the study has led to profound breakthrough. Normally speaking, because we're talking about normally, even if your mind gets blown by being in outer space and looking back at the Earth, or looking through a telescope one day and going, 
oh my God. Or today, you know, they just released information. You know, how, you know people said this common idea, you know, there's as many planets, planetary systems in the universe as there are grains of sand on the Ganges River, right? Mm. But there's no evidence. You'd say that. Well, there must be. There must be so many planets out there, right? This has been said for years, not only by philosophers and Buddhists and so on, and Hindu yogis, but last 30, 40, 50, 60 years by scientists. There must be, without any evidence. Only this year, or last year, is the evidence in through scientific number counting that the number of planetary systems in our universe, which is probably only one of many universes, is so vast. It's uncountable, the number of planetary systems. That just happened. Why? Because they've done enough surveys now within limited areas to go, uh-oh. We're now up to 8,000 planets around stars, around suns, oh, sorry, around suns, like ours, and, and some bigger ones and smaller ones. And then when they take the math and they calculate it out, they go, oh my God, they're everywhere. <laughs> so what was not known before, but just speculated, is now when the math gets done, because the sample size is big enough, they go, oh boy, planets everywhere. And the likelihood of Earth-like planets, fast, fast, fast. That's why I like science. It's cool. It's just neat. All of a sudden, the evidence gets in, and the worldview changes. So you might have been a good yogi, good yogini, and going, of course, right? Some of us have sat around, of course. Absolutely. Is that going to be the case? No doubt about it. But what's lovely is when science actually has the evidence in, you go, and the worldview of scientists and the world starts changing, going, wait a minute, Earth-like planets, millions of them, millions of them, millions of them. Or non-Earth-like, that's even more exciting, mm -hmm. non-Earth-like planets, millions of them, millions of them. Who knows what life forms? Who knows? Okay, where am I going to start this? Oh, I have been. Here's a lovely quote. Says, By the way, the textbook I'm going to be using some of. Uh, you can write it down, but please don't extract it off the internet right now during this retreat. Or don't please um, order it by Amazon to have it shipped here at the moment, please. It's okay, you can wait till later. Uh, I just got lucky. Because I was going to actually give this entire retreat um, just by pulling different things together. But a uh, philosopher and a Buddhist um, uh, and a lecturer in philosophy has just put the 12 examples of illusion together into one book and uh, done my job. Thank you very much. So I got very lucky. It just came out. And a friend of mine who's a Lama, a Lama Sherab, I said to him, do you know of a collection that's been, because I couldn't find anything, that's been put together. And he said, yeah, I just got this book. I'm enjoying it. You might like it. So uh, I just I just got it uh, in the mail before I came here. So I'm making my way through it. So it's absolutely brand new, not brand new fresh material. It's very, very familiar to me. But I didn't have to put an entire course together. It's lovely. I, I like when that happens. This is, this is, makes it efficient. That way I can, we can explore more um, coffee. 
coffee roaster. <laughs> By the way, I had one of the, just to let you know, we, we had, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, we put a blend together this morning of coffee that is every once in a while, every week or two weeks or three months, you get a transcendent coffee where you just go, oh my God. It was one of those kind of like, well, what should we do this morning? Let's put a little bit of this, a little bit of that together. And I tell you, the the range was was breathtaking. For me, I've never had a coffee like it. So to, to let, give you the secret, we may have to actually make it for, for people, you know, just a wider audience. But it was a third uh, uh, Azotea um, uh, estate, Antigua, uh, a third of um, Galapagos coffee from Galapagos, and a, uh, a third of, of, of Yemen uh, from near Mocha, the, the, the town of Mocha. So a Yemenese coffee, which is really an Ethiopian, but what was brought over to, to Yemen uh, hundreds of years ago. And so a third, a third, a third. And it was like, it was, it was so new and refreshing. Sour, but fruity. Anyway, I could go on. But that was, it's a lovely, you know, to make those discoveries. We're just kind of, what should we do this morning? Well, Nunu was the guest, and we went, well, you know, can't be just a straight Guatemalan coffee. We need to do something <laughs> with it. And we haven't tried the, we haven't tried the uh, Galapagos for almost a year. So I for, I'm kind of forgetting what the flavor notes are of that particular one. But was that cool, eh? That was, cool. that was just cool. So maybe we'll have to set up a, uh, we'll do enough of that. We'll probably empty out the bag of, of it, yeah, but so enough for everybody to have to try. That was that was exciting. It happens every once in a while where you just go, "What happened?" I want to read a quote to you, which I which I enjoy in here. Um, this is a, this is an Indian this is an Indian story. You can just listen to this. Don't have to write a thing. <coughs> once upon a time, there was a king in India. An astrologer told him, "Quote." Whoever shall drink the rain which falls seven days from now shall go mad. Okay, so the king gets told by an astrologer, whoever drinks the rain, right, in seven days will go mad. So what does the king do? He covers the wells. He covers his well. So the king covered his well that none of the water could enter it. All of his subjects, however, drank the water and went mad, while the king alone remained sane. (laughs) I love these stories. They're great. Now the king could no longer understand what his subjects thought and did, nor could his subjects understand what the king thought and did. All the subjects shouted, The king is mad! The king is mad! The king is mad! Thus having no choice, the king drank from the water too. There's another story which is very similar, which is there's a whole bunch of fish in the ocean, right? This is very similar. This is very similar to the awakening mind. All these fish in the ocean, 
maybe around the coral reef and they're discussing things. They're going, well, you know, hey, Sam, you know, how's the coral reef today? And uh, Sam goes, oh, it's pretty good, lots of colors. And you see the fish over there and, you know, they're discussing the coral reef and the ocean and all kinds of things during this discussion. And one day, one of the fish gets, for some reason, maybe a hurricane or a storm or a, uh, a water site, a water spout, you know, a water spout, a little like a tornado, gets popped out of the ocean, maybe a big grouper, like this, maybe a 400 pound grouper, boom, not groper. You know, sometimes you go diving, people say, boy, did I see a big groper. <laughs> you did. What were they, were they doing? Hugging you or what? No, no, I, this big giant, there's a big giant groper down there. So the big 400 grouper gets thrown out onto a beach. Imagine, onto a tropical beach. Just, just imagine this, right? Whoa! What are those things? They're seeing, they're, but they have no words for them. They're seeing trees and people sunbathing and having pina coladas and uh, lemonade and there's, 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 you know, drumming and there's, um, you know, whatever, right? Houses. We only got a few minutes, right, before they're dead. <laughs> and they're taking it all in, but there's no words for it. Anyways, then there's a big wind, and it throws the grouper back into the reef. And all the fish say, "What happened to you?" And he went, "I went to this different world." Oh yeah, tell us about it. Well, you see, there's these like coral reef structures, but they're shaped like this, and they have these green things that come off them, and there's like these orange hanging fruits, and there's these be there's these beings with like two long, long legs, and they've got arms coming out like this, and they're like making sounds, and oh, yeah, come on, you know. But this is what it'd be like, see? So for beings that have not experienced the way it is, it's secret. It's esoteric. Why? Simply cannot relate to it. Simply can't relate to it. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. So these stories, there's many, many, many stories like this that go, if you get thrown out of the ocean or thrown out of the common experience, very, very, like Christ, good example, what'd they do to him? Yeah. Why? can't relate to such a being like that. Mad yogis? Very difficult. I, I, I know of a story to, uh, told from the teacher to the student of not long ago, of uh, happened in our lifetime, of a very, very fine practitioner in Tibet who uh, was a Zogchen practitioner in a regular monastery, and I think it was a Nyingma monastery, or Kagyu monastery, and was practicing and had a, a high enough level of attainment that people were not very comfortable with him anymore. And they would not let him teach that perspective. And threw him out. And this, is, this, is, this is the case. This happens. And he wandered and found a hut, a cabin somewhere, valleys and valleys away, and lived there. And eventually people showed up and said, could you teach us? So he started teaching Zogchen again. But he was literally thrown out of his monastery. This is in Tibet. 
This happened many times. Mipam Lama, very famous Lama, chased around, aggravated everybody. His level of realization was so so profound that not only did he win every single debate <laughs> with every great master, but he was not liked. As a matter of fact, he was in some ways persecuted. So there's been been very uh, awake beings who have been persecuted because the feel of their being makes other beings uncomfortable because it shakes up their comfortable reality. And yet, because people think that their comfortable reality is happiness, is mistaken. As I said the other day, the the 12 examples of illusion, of the illusory nature of experience. This is very. We're gonna. I'll come back to this over and over again. Is it the illusory nature of reality, or the illusory nature of experience? I'm gonna leave that with you. I, you know, maybe even write that down or remember that. Are we really reflecting on the illusory nature of a universe? or the illusory nature of experience. Don't keep saying my experience. The nature of a being who has cognitive faculties existing in a universe of sensory experience. What was, um, what was number three? Those three <coughs> aspects of illusion. The first one being what is me, second one natu- nature of things. Oh, nature of phenomena. That's number three. So the second was things and the third one's phenomena. Yeah, it's it really should go this way, because I haven't got to that yet. Oh. Excuse me. Still a lingering Indian <laughs> bacteria or virus that has not completely cleared the system. Rather epidemic up there at the moment. Really, the way it works is this: it, it's subject, sorry, it's subject, me, objects, and then the reference between subjects and objects, which is the phenomenal world. Another way of describing, in terms of the pro- progress of Mahamudra, is my mind, which the discovery is the still oceanic mind of radiant clarity. Then the objects of mind, which is the thinking mind. This is the the levels of discovery of emptiness. How it progresses. It can progress all at once, but normally it needs to be teased out. My mind, in its clear, radiant aspect, my thoughts, which are objects of mind, right? fantasies, thinking, and so on. And then what is the phenomenal world of body and those things out there that appear to be out there? Those three things, those three aspects are the really the hallmark of the project that needs to be done to tease out the nature of emptiness. Not just one or the other. So some people spend all their time trying to figure out what are things. What's the phenomenal universe? Phenomena? Things. 
but they miss the self. So if they don't purify the self view, you can't you cannot purify the phenomena. Occasionally there is teaching, such as in Zogchen and Mahamudra and Zen, where if the being is fortunate enough with a fortunate enough teacher, all three come together at once. Why? Because the nature of mind encompasses all three. But usually one has to work systematically back and forth to tease them out until the realization is very firm and um, clear. Now let me tell you, as I mentioned before, these 12 examples are not all the examples. But they're the main ones. There's others that are main too, but they come in different texts. Uh, So in the 18th century, a a scholar, a yogi scholar called Kunchuk Jimmy Wangpo, put together an encyclopedia. There's many encyclopedias that have been um, written in Tibet. And this one grouped categories, 12 of this, 10 of this, 5 of this. It's an old old method. So the encyclopedia is based on numbers. What are the twos? What are the threes? What are the fours? This is a very old way of of classifying the world. In this case, what are the twelves? Well, what he did is he went through all the different Prajnaparamita teachings, which started somewhere around the first century before before Christ, these, the literature, and actually went through it and collected all the different examples from the Prajnaparamita. But there's others. And, we'll, and I'm going to also describe the others as well. So here's the... I'm just going to... Just to start, I'm going to give you the 12. You don't even have to write them down right now because today is going to be magical uh, illusion. That's for today's theme. So number one, just listen to them. It's okay. Is magical illusion... The moon in water, visual distortions, mirages, dreams. I quite like all this. It's wonderful. Always comes at appropriate time. <laughs> dreams, echoes, a city of Gandharas. I'll tell you what that's about. It's like a um, ki- kingly godlike realm. Optical illusions, rainbows, lightning, water bubbles, a reflection in a mirror. We could take some of those and make that an entire three-week or four-week retreat. That's how deep this is. And some of you may do that. That's why I'm giving this out. Because you may find that something, you go, whoa, I like this, it's happening, I'm getting a feel for this. And then you may go into retreat or make that a theme for two or three months of your normal life and go, I'm going to really enter this deeply. I'm going to study mirror-like experience. I'm going to study bubbles. I'm going to study clouds. I'm going to study... Ah, it's not in there. I'm going to study waterfall. It's not in there. I'm going to study rapidly flowing streams. It's not in there uh, in that list, but, but, but classically taught. I'm going to study optical illusions. I'm going to now meditate for months on mirages or echoes or dreams. Do you see? So I'm giving these out because you may find something that works for you. This is called completion yoga, by the way. This is high yoga. Something that works for you that triggers a burst of contemplative activity that bears fruit. 
That's how we teach. Right? I can just give you one. All you need to do is reflect on mirrors. <laughs> Pardon the pun. All you need to do is reflect on mirrors. And, and I'm serious. That is enough. Absolutely enough. One of the major practices of this being. Right? That's enough. You need nothing else. But for you, that may not be as quick and easy and direct as bubbles or as rainbows. Do you see? So you hear something, you have it described to you, and all of a sudden you go, that's working. I like this. I get a good feeling for this one. That's why. Yes? Would you call them portals? Portals. That's a very good term. Portals. Examples, guides, uh, outward signs that are portals into a giant exploration called the nature of reality. Sure. Absolutely. Portals. Portals. Yeah. They're gates. Gates into dismembering and dismantling fixed view. Could, in, in certain cases, art be considered also a, or maybe certain type of art? Like a portal also. Yes. So give an example, a very good example. Uh, thank you for raising that. We, we just, uh, Jamie and I, were in Vienna recently and saw the supposedly the biggest collection of René Magritte exhibit, a surrealistic uh, art, a service art, uh, ever put on. It was extraordinary. So if you get a chance to go to Vienna, uh, take the opportunity to go see this exhibit. It's, it's wonderful. That's what he was exploring, this the surrealist movement about what is the nature of reality and his paintings many of his paintings he's not no wasn't the greatest painter but uh, he was a graphic artist uh, cartoons graphic artists posters but his ability to explore the illusory phenomena of perception actually that's not true the, yeah the illusory nature of experience over and over and over again for what was it 40 years of his life something like that yeah maybe 40 years very productive very very prolific uh, yes but the question is this is what you must ask as a practitioner of Dharma not philosophy did that work that he did for 40 years of his life actually clear up and transform his emotional life and lead to a clear, compassionate, open, vivid, illuminated consciousness. Did it actually go deep enough to transform the very ground of his being? That's the question. You so, not a bad exploration. Wonderful. Thank you for you know. Because I, I actually have cards. I'm going to show you. I bought a, I bought a whole bunch of cards from the exhibit to show you examples from the Twelve Illusions. Because this guy is great. But I have questions about what it effectively did for his personal life. Just like some, some, just like some of the great European philosophers. <coughs> did it go deep enough, the intellectual work, did it go deep enough to make wholesale changes to the way in which his being. Uh, so I'm not going to say yes or no. I don't know. That's the question, really. So yes, is it possible? Absolutely. Is it possible? Yes. But uh, it could be used as a 
as a guy, as a way in. That's right. That's right. You can use you can do you can use art, you could use poetry, you could use science, right? You can you can walk in nature, all these different things. The craft, coffee. You could use coffee or tea, or um, souffles, or making cookies. You could literally take any craft. And use it as a port, as a way in, to to open up the illusory nature, for sure, absolutely. And and yogis have done this for centuries, gemstones, uh, rugs, all, all kinds of things, craft that their their students do to break down the conceptual fixation. It's been used for centuries and centuries. It's very normal. It's very very normal in India. You go to the great master. The great master yogi, and and you weren't interested in liberation. Normally, you weren't interested in liberation. Interested in magical powers. I want the best bride that money can buy, because I'm not a king. I want her. How am I going to get her? This is classic, right? Go to the go to the Indian yogi. How am I going to get her? I want her as my bride. He goes, no problem. <laughs> you study with me. I'm going to give you the mantras and the yoga that's going to allow you to, to get her for our bride. Oh, thank you, Guru. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Guru. Whatever it is, riches, you name it, they all fell for it. You know, all based on greed, hatred, and delusion, pride, and jealousy. Yeah, come with me. You be my student. I will show you exactly how to have the most beautiful woman in the world. Maybe in the whole universe. Oh yes, yes, please, 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 please. Well, the first thing you need to do, you see, is that kitchen over there needs sweeping. Okay. Well, if you just sweep every day, maybe three, four times a day, that will do it. That will that will get you there. So after a year of sweeping the floor, uh, about the bride. Oh yes, oh yes, yes, yes. That's right. That was your question. You want to um, have the most beautiful bride in the whole universe? Yes. I haven't forgotten yet. Okay. okay. What you need to do is the following. See, you need to make rice exactly this way. It'd be like making coffee. Yes. You need to make rice. We make rice in a very or or or, or millet in a very specific way. And I'm going to show you how to do this, but it's going to take you about a year to master this. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, Guru. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the secret. So the student goes off for a year learning how to make millet or rice in a certain way, going, I'm going to get the bride. I'm going to get the bride. You see, after five years of this, (laughs) as they're being purified through the outer and then the inner, yeah, They've forgotten about the pursuit of the bride. They're now being initiated into things like the clear mind. They're hearing teachings on the nature of reality. They're, they're hearing teachings on uh, cessation of suffering and so on. And they don't care about the bride anymore. They're, whoa, I like this. It's a very common, very common method. Where 
I mentioned the perfection of wisdom. The main teaching of perfection of wisdom uh, in the Mahayana tradition is called the Heart Sutra. There is the perfection of wisdom in 100,000 lines, big, giant tome. Perfection in, my goodness, how many? Six, ver- six seven versions. 24,000 lines, 8,000 lines, 1,000 lines, so on. But in the Heart Sutra, which is one page, okay, pith, pith teaching of the Heart Sutra, as given by Buddha Shakyamuni, is in one line. There is a teaching of one letter. It's the Heart Sutra in one letter. That is the syllable ah. That's it. Okay, so the hearts, the entire Heart Sutra can be the teaching of the Heart Sutra can be described by the vowel ah, short ah. Here is a translation. I make. I might go to to my translation there. We'll see. Um, to give you a feel uh, of the central tenet of the Heart Sutra, why this teaching of illusion is so important. It's an extract from the page. Matter or form, he, he likes the translation. This, this, this translator likes, um, he's not only a philosopher, but he also translates Tibetan. He's a, a Tibetan Sanskrit scholar. Matter is emptiness, and emptiness itself is matter. I'm going to read that again because this is radical. This is radical view. In India, in the world, this is radical view. It still is radical view in many circles. Not today in modern physics and chemistry. But in, in experience, radical. Matter is emptiness, and emptiness itself is matter. Matter is not distinct from emptiness, and emptiness is not distinct from matter. All things are marked. The word "mark," by the way, is is signed, is stamped. I, I prefer instead of I, the word "mark" is nice, but um, stamped. I prefer the translation "stamped," um, sealed. All things, everything, every component, compounded thing, including self, is stamped by emptiness. It is not arisen, has never ceased. Not pure, not defiled, not diminishing, not increasing. In emptiness, there is no eye, there's no ear, there no, there's no t- nose, no tongue, no body, and even no mind. There's no shape. No sound, no smell, no taste, nothing to be touched, nothing to be thought of. There is no knowledge, no ignorance, no ending of ignorance, no ending of old age and death. There's no suffering. A little different than than yesterday. Interesting, eh? This is now... Prajnaparamita teaching. There is no suffering. There is no cessation of suffering. There is no path leading to the cessation of suffering. 
There is no wisdom. There is no attainment. And there's no non-attainment either. This is big, radical view. Huge. This particular text called the Heart Sutra, which is being chanted right now in hundreds of monasteries around the world, right now, guaranteed, somewhere in the morning, somewhere in the evening, there is a ceremony going on, a puja, in the morning in a Zen monastery and somewhere in China, somewhere in Japan, maybe even in Tibet or in India, somewhere, or in North America, or maybe even in Guatemala, I don't know. The, chant, the Heart Sutra is being chanted and being studied. Because for over a thousand years, it's led so many beings to liberation. Zen practitioners. Tibetans, Indians. Vietnamese. Cambodians. Of such profound nature. That one, what I just read you, people have taken as their sole meditation for years and have attained great liberation. Some of the greatest Zen masters. This was, this was a breath... As the Buddha's teaching that he gave upon his enlightenment was a breathtaking... Um, what's the word? Breathtaking quantum jump in consciousness, in liberation. The Heart Sutra and the teaching of the Prajnaparamita is called another... It's called turning of the wheel. The second turning of the wheel. Profound, profound insight into the nature of reality. So that's to describe... The Heart Sutra, describe the Prajnaparamita, these 12 examples, of which there's more, keep coming up within the Prajnaparamita to keep bringing the mind deeper towards what I just read you. That's why it's used. It's exactly one and a half hours. <laughs> Is that enough? Have you had a, have you had a, enough? I haven't even gone on to magic. I haven't even gone to the first chapter yet. You go a little further. Here's a quote from, from, from the Diamond Sutra, one of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, very famous sutra, which has enlightened many people. Like stars, like an optical illusion, like a lamp, like a magical illusion, dewdrops or a bubble like a dream, a flash of lightning, or a cloud. So all that is produced is to be seen. In other words, all that is manifested is to be seen like what? All that you experience. I'm just going to re-translate it a little bit. All that is seen, all that is experienced, is to be experienced as like stars in space, or stars in a lake like an optical illusion, like a lamp, like a magical illusion, like dewdrops. Why dewdrops? Gone. Right? Ever sat with dewdrops? Here's a meditation for you. If we have dewdrops here. If you have the patience. I'm going to give you lots of meditations that require patience. Only work if you have patience. Find some dewdrops and sit with them or stand without moving. Very gently focusing on the dewdrop without fixation, without 
You know, this kind of trying to get something. Because you're not trying to get anything out of it. <coughs> but catching the moment when the dewdrop goes. Can you be there for the beginning, the middle, and the end? Because dewdrops are fascinating, aren't they? They're so beautiful, aren't they? And then they're what? Gone. Like all phenomena. They're gone. Is there let me give you ask you a question. Is there any phenomena in the universe that isn't fascinating? Isn't fascinating? Can you think of anything in the universe that is not fantastically interesting? Worthy of study? Worthy investigation? Can you come up with one thing at all? Write that down. Try it. Just try it. In the next month, can you find anything that isn't fascinatingly interesting? That doesn't, uh, let me tell you what I mean by fast, fantastically interesting. That if you were to study it and investigate it, it has such ramifications, such avenues of exploration, that it would open up an exploration for the rest of your life. Let me give you an example. How many people find the concrete pillar fascinating? I do. I suspect Nuno does, being an architect. At least one facet of your being, yes? One facet of your being. I find concrete absolutely fascinating. Not only how it's made, how it's fashioned, but if you were to study concrete, that pillar has a universe of exploration that would take you lifetimes of study and interest and exploration all day long for the rest of your life. So you tell me if you can find anything that you're bored with. Most people do. The mind that's awake finds nothing uninteresting. The mind that's awake sees every single phenomena as a great story to unfold everything else. Endless. Look at a piece of glass and you will be caught in the glass to, to studying the majesty of glass, or, oh, you want to see something? You want to see some beautiful glass? Open your luggage. It's, it's my knapsack. It's my knapsack. That's glass. It's natural glass. We call it opal. It's opal. Precious opal. Do you find that fascinating? Who finds that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Can't, uh, Barry? Absolutely beautiful blue, violet, yellows, and red flashes in stone. Do you find that fascinating? But are you fascinated to now go, why those colors? Why, why, why? You see? A lifetime of study. Easily. A lifetime of study. Fascinating. How are those colors made? 30 to 60 nanometer spheres arrayed in a line. Produce the colors. Pretty cool.
fascinates me more is how the mind actually enters itself. Yep. Yeah. And the color itself. We're gonna we're gonna get to that. Lots of that, Barry. But yes. Why are some things fascinating and others not? Why do how do people get bored? How can you how is it possible <laughs> to be bored? You know, every once in a while someone says to me, not very often, they don't they don't even dare, but uh, every once in a while someone says, I'm bored. And I go, No, actually you're boring. It's not possible. That means just you're boring. If you're bored, you're boring. So there are others uh, that are outside the 12 examples, like the lamp, the dewdrops, the cloud. Uh, they're from other, other sources, but they're often just used. And the empty fist, an illusory uh, flower appearing in the sky, a shadow, or a plantain tree. Some of these are found in, in earlier texts than the Prajnaparamita, and they're great. They're wonderful examples. I might have to revise my schedule. <laughs> Pardon? Two months. Two months, yes. I think that's enough for today. We'll just finish off with... Uh, yeah, I think that's fine. Finish there and then we'll maybe get to magical illusions, magical show um, later. I will read this because it's worth it's worth actually you having even writing down. You know, everywhere I find even in detective novels I can teach from detective novels or gardening books or whatever. But here's a book that uh, uh, mysteriously appeared uh, in the ca- in the uh, villa. Have you read this, by the way? It's a lovely book, isn't it? But in here is a quote from Guru Rinpoche, great. Um, person that brought, great teacher that brought tantric um, Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century. Let's see if I can find the quote. Here's a very short quote from Guru Rinpoche or Padmasamava in a text called Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. Very profound text. And uh, I read that yesterday and went, oh, that's a good one uh, for this. There you go. Just listen to it first. Samsara and nirvana have no other difference than that between the moment of being aware and aware. Sorry, moment of being unaware and aware. I'm going to read that again. That's that's actually uh, alone worth an entire day to just just reflect on that again and again and again. Samsara, that is cyclic, uh, delusionary existence, or the the experience of dukkha of suffering and nirvana have no other difference than that between the moment of being unaware and being aware. That's it. When there's awareness, it's shattered. It's gone. When there is unawareness, there's some sorrow. Since we are not deluded by perception, perception actually is not the delusion. Since we are not deluded by perception, but by fixation. That's it. Very, 
this, this, of course, enlightened being is extremely perceptive. <laughs> Guru, Guru Rinpoche was called the second Buddha. Why? Uh, because the man was uh, extraordinarily awakened being and a, and a very compassionate teacher. Since we are not deluded by perception, but by fixation, liberation naturally occurs when we recognize that fixated thoughts are only mind grasping at its own empty reflections. Maybe I'll just leave this here. You can write it down. Okay. Or someone can write it. Actually, maybe someone can write it out. Let's do that. We'll do that uh, when we go back to the the little cabin. Uh, <laughs> it's beautiful there, as all of these are. I'm going to read it once more, but this is this is something to write down, and uh, every few times a day, just pull it out and reflect on it and go. This is this is pith. This is one of those great pithy paragraphs that uh, bring you, help you come to liberation. Samsara and nirvana have no other difference than that between the moment of the moment. That means milliseconds. The moment of being unaware and aware. Aware of what? Since we are not deluded by perception, but by fixation, liberation naturally occurs when we recognize, recognize, not even experience, recognize that fixated thoughts are only mind grasping at its own empty reflections. That's the entire month's retreat summed up right there by an enlightened mind that can, can encapsulate it beautifully. That's a beautiful, by the way, that, that teaching of uh, liberation to seeing with naked awareness, I have a copy of it. That's, I've, I've given that teaching before and that's, uh, that's worthy of month. So that will be very much what this is on about. Remember that. Is your perception diluted or are the thoughts that perceive, no, thoughts that interpret perception, diluted. That's what he means by fixated thoughts. Not even thinking. Because when the word thought is used, it doesn't just mean thinking. It means feeling and concepts that are invisible to our being. I'll quote from a, a philosopher and scientist, Messenger, Messenger, Thomas Messenger, he calls this transparency. Quote, a conscious world model active in the brain is transparent if the brain has no chance of discovering that it is a model. I'll read that again because that might be a little bit tough. <coughs> Some of these things are not written for, they're written for PhDs, you know, PhD in philosophy. A conscious world model, active in the brain, is transparent if the brain has no chance of discovering that it is a model. In other words, it's so transparent to us, we don't even see the model. We look right through it, as he says, and I don't agree with this, because I think it's improper, but 
one looks right through it directly into into the mind, as it were. Yes, if you had awareness, you would look directly into the mind. I don't think he really means that. You just look, you look at your own mind, but you don't see the model. Make sense? Have you had that happen in your life? I never saw that. I never had any idea. I'm sorry, but I never knew how you felt. Right? Because he couldn't feel it. I'm sorry, I never knew you felt that way or saw the world that way. I, oh my goodness. You mean you can experience the world this way? Did you say? I'm not clear. Is he saying that the model is your view? The model's transparent to you. You can't see the model. It's hidden. It's hidden from so you. It's your hidden view. Okay. It's your hidden view. Okay. Yeah. Because, as he says, um, it's a world model, active in the brain, transparent. Okay. If the brain has no chance of discovering it. In other words, it's like your nose. It's so close that you can't see it. You know, if you don't have a mirror, and if you have a mirror, you're not seeing your nose anyways. You're just seeing a reflection, right? But Or you've, maybe you've got a mole here. It's too close, so all you do is you imagine what it's like, but it's so transparent to you, you operate as if it's real, but you have no idea it's even there. What the Ford Motor Company, what McDonald's does from the age of one years old, as soon as you can watch television, I'm not, don't think I'm joking. Oh, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm serious, as I am a lot of time. From the moment that you can watch television, a model is being placed into your consciousness for the rest of your life, which is something like you will buy Ford cars or you will eat at McDonald's. That's how they do it. They're, they're, it's, they're consciously aware. I don't make this up. There's been, they're very, very, uh, what's the word? It's out there. That if you want to get large populations buying your product for generations, start early. Do you know that you want McDonald's? No but you certainly feel like you do. Do you know that you want a Ford Motor product? No. Do you know that you want Marlboro cigarettes? No. You just go and you buy Marlboro cigarettes. It's, it's a model transparent to consciousness. Like the model of marriage. In North American society, in modern society, where does it come from? Who's the greatest promoter of the model, modern model of marriage? And where does it come from? Hollywood. How many times a year do movies come out saying, this is what you'll feel like? Did you say? And how many, and how long has that been going on in our consciousness? Since we've been little children. Right? And reading it in books. As one who's part of that. Was part of that industry? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of money's been made out of that, hasn't it? Yeah. How many bridal magazines are there? Bridal magazines? Wedding magazines? 
See you. <laughs> do you, you know what you've got to do? You've got some homework now? Right. By this powerful activity, may it lead to cessation of suffering for all beings. Idante punikamang asuwaki wangho tu, idante punikamang asuwaki wangho tu, idante punikamang asuwaki wangho tu. May all beings be healthy and happy. May all beings be established in a continuum of freedom, perfect union of wisdom and compassion. Saramangalam, Saramangalam, Saramangalam.